be in First John again, chapter two, two, and then to verse th- or chapter three. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. First John two, uh, verse twenty-eight. We'll start in verse twenty-eight. First John chapter 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, this word has looked like the Grand Canyon this week in amazement and in wonder. You've allowed me to see the beauty of your word, the beauty of your person. So God, we pray this morning that I would be able to convey what you've shown me and that others would glorify and would marvel at the wonder of you. God, that's our prayer. We pray right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want us to begin real quick. And again, this, these verses that we're going to look at today, it, it really is looking like looking at the Grand Canyon. It is the most, I'm not going to say the most marvelous words in all the Bible because they're not, it's hard, to, I don't like making most statements like that. But I want to remind us where we've been kind of in 1 John, and then hopefully we can see today what, what I've seen this week. Um, in 1 John, he starts the book by reminding them that he's writing these things that our joy may be complete. And the last couple of weeks, you might be like, well, Daniel, we've been talking about the Antichrist. We've been talking about deception. We've been talking about so many things. What? Like his joy being complete? what I want us to see, what we have seen, is that Christ's coming, even the Antichrist, joy is being extended to us. Because when we abide in Christ, not only will truth reign, but we will experience maximum joy. The guarding of deception will be for maximum joy in God. And again, this week, John's kind of pausing. He's, he's pausing on what he's been talking about. Antichrist, deception, <laughs> wickedness, sin... And he's going to tell us some words that we just need to stand back and just marvel at. But I think one, one barrier to marveling that I've found as I've considered this is, you know, last week we talked about the journey of abiding in Christ. And I want you to think for a second. When you think about your own journey of abiding in Christ, what, what comes into your mind about your own journey of abiding in Christ? Is it, is it a joyful experience Is it an experience you would recommend to your neighbor? And I think one of the barriers to what we're going to be talking about today is this 
crushing effect of the ought to's. I once heard a guy say that it's the tyranny of the oughts. I ought to read my Bible more. I ought to pray more. I ought to stop looking at those websites. While most of those oughts may be true in and of themselves, they lack a power to change us. They create burdens and expectations without providing the power to do anything about it. Or the shoulds. I should pray with my family more. I should evangelize more. I should have healthier habits. And honestly, I'm I'm the worst one at yoking people with the shoulds. You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. Should, 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 should. We just do that all over the place. These ought tos and these shoulds concentrate on behavioral matters, which are important, let's be clear. But real and lasting change begins internally and moves external through the grace and power of God. I want to talk to you today about the fuel and the heart from where real change comes from. Now, if you're taking notes, I have one point for today. It's this. It says, since we are the children of God, our lives will be marked by familial love and unfriendly rejection. And then we're going to spend all day unpacking that statement. So go ahead and look with me uh, in verse 28, and we'll walk back through it. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Remember that this abiding that John is calling us to, he's calling us to abide so that Christ, when Christ comes, we may not shrink back and be ashamed at his coming. And he's calling us to a joy-filled confidence for the arrival of the Savior. And then he's going to kind of shift gears. And if you, you can see the shift of gears in verses 28 and 29. He moves from abiding to righteousness. And we'll be attempting to define that phrase, familial love. And the first point, if, you, if you're taking notes, is the children of God. That's what I want you to see. The children of God, we are what we are. And he says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. John is more or less saying, since you know that Christ is righteous, which he's already talked to us about, we would more, exp- we would more expect him to say, well, since you've been born of him who is righteous, practice righteousness. Notice the way he says it, though. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We need to do some definition work first. So what does John mean by righteousness? Is he referring to just good morals? Is he referring to just a good life? What's he talking about? And if that's the case, if that's what he's talking about, if it's good morals or good living, then let me tell you, anybody on the street can practice righteousness. There are plenty of people, let's be clear, there are plenty of people outside of the Christian community One of the most striking things I found when we went to Dearborn to talk with Muslims was how nice they were. They were the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life, legitimately. Most hospitable, most friendly. They give me the shirt off their back. There are plenty of people who do good things outside of the church. Morality only is not what John has in mind. Righteousness means the quality of life that was lived by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
And that's what we found, even in Dearborn. And it wasn't just because we were working with Muslims. It was because we're working with non-believers. The righteousness that John is referring to is a righteousness that is by faith. It's a righteousness that begins internally and moves outwardly. If you want to see a good demonstration of righteousness, go read the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't just say, do this, do that. He doesn't just give all these little moral things. Be good, be a good person. He addresses the heart. The righteousness that John is talking about is a righteousness that begins at the heart, which is being before doing. This is where we're going with this. Familial love intends being before doing. If you want to put in parentheses beside that. Identity before action. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Another way you could say it is identity precedes action, or, or who you are produces what you do. And the one who is born of God will practice righteousness, not the other way around. In the scriptures, we could point to a hundred different places to see this, born of God. And I just gave two references there, and we'll just read it real quick. Um, and, and the, the first is John 3, 5 through 7. And Jesus is, is, is there. He, the, the leaders of the Jews, Nicodemus, comes to him. A ruler of the Jews comes to Jesus at night, and he asks him, how do I, how do I get the kingdom? I want the kingdom. And this is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What Jesus is saying here is that a person does not become a member of the kingdom of God by physical birth. They don't enter because they're born into the right family. They don't enter because they went to the right church or were baptized. They enter the kingdom of God because they were born from above. And John 1, even going back even further in John but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the same way, a child cannot be born of his own choosing. Those who are born again does not come from their own doing. And as John has said, being born again precedes actions of righteousness. And I want you to see that the, the, the root comes before the fruit. That the root comes before the fruit. And the root of the tree always precedes the fruit. It always produces the fruit. And John is trying to stress to us that doing what is right is the consequence of spiritual birth. Not the other way around. Doing what is right is not the cause of spiritual birth. And we're starting to see even how John's starting to link his book together a little bit, how we see that doing or the obedience test of walking in obedience and then the belief test. If you're not believing the right things, then you will never walk in obedience the right way. But why do I bring this up? What, what does it matter? What happens when we get the doing, the action, before the identity? Now, I want to give you two isms. The first one is moralism. And it says, I obey to be accepted. Moralism. A kind of self-effort which tries to white-knuckle its way to obedience. 
when we start with action and then move to identity, every failure will crush you because you're working for your identity. You're working to become a child of God. And that is impossible. Let me give you a second ism. Perfectionism. I must obey perfectly. Your success will produce in you a pride and a self-confidence. You'll try to find strength in the ought-tos or the shoulds. I should do this, and I should read my Bible more, and I should talk to people about Jesus, and I should do this, and I shouldn't be fearful, and I should, and I should, and I should. And we, this, is, this is our life as a, spirit, as, a, as a Christian. An obedience which stems from behavior modification rather than faith working through love. And brothers and sisters, we must flip this around. We must begin with our identity. We must begin by seeing that we earn nothing. But God in Christ Jesus has given us everything. So what is our identity? What is that identity? I hope you see it by now, that that identity is the children of God, being being a part of the children of God. Since we are the children of God, our lives will be marked by familial love. And I want you to notice how John goes on to describe the origins of the children of God. Look what he says in verse 1. He's starting to shift gears. You can see him shifting gears a little bit. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Notice that phrase, what manner of love. Uh, One commentator helpfully pointed out, he said that if you would live in a first century Greek town, a seaport town specifically, it was common for ships to come in and out of port. And when a ship would come in, they would look on the horizon for the silhouette of the ship. And by the silhouette or the, by the, the, um, the sail on the horizon, they could tell whether it was an enemy ship or a, a foreign ship or their own. And you would hear people asking, of what country? That's what they would ask. Of what country? And that is the same exact word that is translated as of what manner. And what John is trying to do, he's, he's, this word bristles with surprise, with astonishment, with urgency and excitement. What kind of love the Father has given to us. The love that John is describing here from God to us is a love so astonishing, so amazing, so foreign to our view that he describes it with the same words that sailors would use to describe ships on the horizon. Foreign, foreigners actually coming. This is a foreign love. He says, what kind of love? What manner of love is this? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And I love what the ESV adds because it's there in the original. It says, and so we are. And so we are. I love what J.I. Packer once said. He said, were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, it'd be this. He said his proposal would be adoption through propitiation. It would be adoption through propitiation. What John is talking about, that word propitiation just means covering for sin. So it's adoption or adopted into the family of God through covering of sin. And what John is talking about in these verses is referred to the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption finds itself nestled within the doctrine of justification. 
because justification is God's legal declaration of us, calling us forgiven. Adoption is the legal declaration that we've been brought into the family of God. I love J.I. Packer again. If you ever get confused about a topic, just go look up what J.I. Packer says on it, and he'll, he'll probably bring some light to it. I love what he says about adoption. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Here it is. To be right with God the judge, justification, is a great thing. Hear this. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption, is a greater thing. Love so amazing, so divine. Let me give you an example, though. So Macy was a young girl who had lost her father when she was two years old to addiction. And her mother to prison at age 11, also because of drugs. Growing up, this is Macy, growing up her life was anything but stable. Continuous drug use and domestic violence marred her life all around her. Placed in the temporary custody of her aunt while her mother served her jail sentence, Macy's life became unraveled. Macy was 15 and her aunt released her into the foster system, basically saying, I can't keep you any longer. She described her situation with increased fears and feelings of isolation. There she is, Macy, 15 years old, in the foster care system. She was placed in a strict group home that provided basics for food, for basics for life. Food, shelter, medical care, nothing else. No love, no affection. Macy became a junior in high school, quickly nearing what is called aging out in the system. When children turn 18, they take them. The, the state says they can't be adopted anymore. And Macy had already given up hope of being adopted. She, did her, she redid her paperwork to basically say, I don't even want to be adopted anymore. There's no way. No one's going to want me. I, don't, I need to be realistic. No one wants to adopt me. Who would want me? And it was at this time that a family came to Macy and began to, dr- began to be drawn to adopt her. You know, we hear Macy's story, and we see the beauty of it. Here is a child who ought not to be alone. And we see it, and we think, that's amazing. Someone came to her when she had no one else. Nobody wanted her, and now she had a loving family. Brothers and sisters, we feel for Macy's story at a deeper level because each of us, to some degree, share Macy's story. The love that has been given to us by God the Father is that he has adopted wicked and sinful rebels into his family. Unlike Macy, we had no hope. Unlike Macy, we had no other help from another. We had nothing. Completely undeserving of anything. And God gave us everything. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, hear that rightly, Notice, it doesn't say, for while you got your stuff together, then Christ came for you. It says, no, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, this is our story. Now, it could be a temptation of us when we see this to think, okay, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. It could be a temptation to think, okay, well, I think God maybe just says, yeah, you're my child, but you're that child I get really annoyed at. You just always screw up over and over and over again. But that's not what John says. He clarifies in verse 1. Look at what he says. See, see what kind of love, the fa- and the ESV hits it really well. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Or some translations say, and indeed we are. Which is more than a title. If you're taking notes, it's that first bullet point. More than a title. We are the children of God. This is the greatest news imaginable. That God has loved us in Christ Jesus so much that he has called us his own children. Not just that he said, oh yeah, yeah, you're my child. He actually said, no, you're a part of my family now. Another translation, I love what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called God's children and indeed we are. Since we are the children of God, our lives will be marked by familial love. The enjoyment of the fact that we have been included into the family of God. The love, the friendship, the joy that it is to be a part of the family of God. Now I think we need to pause. And this is where I thought we were going to, I ended up breaking this sermon into two because as I kept thinking about this, this passage and, and what it's saying about us, that we've been adopted through the atoning work of Christ, these three categories that we're about to talk about, are two of them are barriers. The first two are barriers. And the third one is what I would call the solution. And I almost want to, want to give it to you as, as kind of a, you need to do this in, under, in order to understand, or you need to see this in order to understand the children aspect, that we're adopted into the family of God. So the first two markers, I want to give you the first one. It's actually a roadblock to understanding that we're part of the children of God. Is actually self-hate. Self-hate. And I've entitled that disdaining yourself. And this category might surprise you. Maybe you're thinking like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. But if you struggle with this, you're like, okay, I understand. This voice of self-hatred elevates our sinful position over and above what God has said about us. The voice of self-hate says, you're an idiot. You're a dog. You're worthless. And again, we may blush as we hear these things, but I wonder how much of our own self-talk is marked by this kind of language. We miss out on our Bible reading. You idiot. How 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 could God ever love you? We realize, we realize we're too harsh with our children. You're an awful parent. You're going to screw up your kid just like you're screwed up. I'm a failure. Nobody loves me. I'm way too messed up and weird. All I ever do is make things worse. I'll never amount to anything. I'm a disappointment to everyone. I deserve to be treated poorly. I am weak, pathetic, and too sensitive. 
Does that language sound familiar to you? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. That is theological talk for Christ's blood is not sufficient for a sinner like me. That's theological talk for I will believe what I want to about myself over and against what God has said of me. I want you to see that self-hatred is actually a barrier to the joy of our identity as the children of God. See what, so then when you think about, okay, here's someone struggling with self-hatred, self-condemnation in that way. Then we enter the scriptures and we open it up and we see, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. By the blood of Jesus on the cross, you were adopted and brought into his family. He then gives you a new name. John 1.12, I'll read it again, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. With a name comes a status. With a name comes a status which is from him. The voice of God says, you are a child of God. That is your true name. No other name is more true of you than the one I've given you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So that's for self-hate. Let me give you another one. And this one's far more pervasive than self-hate. It's self-love. And it says, appreciate yourself. This category will not surprise you because you hear it everywhere. From TV to pop psychology to the mailman at your front door. Self-love is the rule of the day and it undermines, hear me rightly, it undermines the familial love that God has for us. It sounds like, of course God came to save us. What would he have done without me? You need to just love yourself, affirm yourself, You'll find freedom. Here's another quote from one of our secular priests. If you have the ability to love, love yourself first. This kind of self-love is a barrier to the familial love that God has invited us into because it undermines the very love that God has shown us. You know what self-love does? Here, let me give you the theological talk of what self-love does. God came for us because he didn't want to be without me. How could he want to be without me? That's the theological talk for God. Of course God loves me. How couldn't he love me? And both self-hate and self-love do the exact same thing. They undermine and they cut off the legs of the fact that God says, you are a child of God because of what Christ has done on the cross. It diminishes his compassion for us. It diminishes his mercy on us. So what am I calling us to? The last point, self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. And we entitled it, Fear and Trembling in the Family of God. Here's the thing. There's only one being in the entire universe and everything outside of the universe who can actually self-love and it not be idolatry. And it's God himself. 
You know what, you know what that attribute is? When we say that God loves himself, what we're saying is he's holy, holy, holy. It means that he and he alone is so utterly devoted unto himself that he, is, he could be described as divine self-love. So for us to say, well, Daniel, you need self-love, or you need self-love, or you need self-hate, it's to say, you're not really holy. I'm holy. And the Bible's witness is that we should see, like we saw in Leviticus today, the holiness of God. When we try to approach God in a way that is not according to how he said, what happens? They're consumed. But remember little Macy. You remember the little Macy that we just talked about? Imagine, if you will, the family, if she was adopted into the family, of the greatest king in all the land. In that moment, she goes from literal rags to the point where she is, in, she is a part of the kingdom. She has all the benefits of the kingdom at her disposal. She has all of the privileges. All of the people of the kingdom desire to talk to the king at fear of their own life, maybe. And you know what she can do? She can waltz right up to the king. Why? Because she's, she's her daughter, or he, she is his daughter. Tim Keller, I love what he says. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And friends, we have that kind of access. We have that kind of access. Turn with me real quick to Philippians 2. I want you to see on the, on the Philippians 2, and we're going to look at 12 and 13. Philippians 2, what we just read this morning, was this passage, on what's described as humility, but it's humility to show that Christ has actually humbled himself, and Paul's encouraging them to, to keep the same kind of manner or demeanor themselves, because Christ has humbled himself. But listen to what he says in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Listen to what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Why should they work out their salvation with fear and trembling? I thought you just said they're part of the family of God. Here's the reason. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He's saying that we should tremble under the idea that God most high chooses to bring in sinful and wicked people into his family. Not just that he brings them in, but he chooses to work in them, and he chooses to enjoy them and enjoy time with them. Since we are the children of God, our lives will be marked by familial love. But we need to hit that last point, an unfriendly rejection. Why does John begin talking about this world rejecting them? And I think it makes sense when you see it in total. In verse 1, he says, Behold what manner, this is First John again, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. And this last point, if you're taking notes, is strangers and exiles. I love what the, the net translation, how, what it said. It said, see what sort of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called God's children. And indeed we are. For this reason the world did not know us, because it did not know him. 
got to remember, this, this group of Christians just had a part of their church break off. They had a part of their church say, we're, we're going to follow this other teaching, this special knowledge, we're going to go follow them. And he's saying to them, you, church, are the children of God. And the reason the world doesn't know you is because it doesn't know me. It was like having a family member, longtime friends, this church had that left them. And listen to what Hebrews eleven thirteen says. These all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know why they're strangers and exiles? Because they were born from a heavenly hope. They were born of a place that's not of this world. Again, John, John 1, I've read it three times, and I'll read it a fourth time. He came to his own. That's Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I think if John, if he could whisper to us what he's, what he's doing here, notice he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And then as a whisper, he's, he's really saying, what does it matter if anyone likes you? What, what, is it, what does it matter? What does it matter if anyone else cares? If the king of king receives you, what opinions matter outside of that? The answer is none. There is no other opinions. There is no other opinions because the children of God are us, that we are brought into the family of God. If the King of Kings receives you, what other opinion matters? The answer is none. Since we are children of God, our lives will be marked by familial love and unfriendly rejection. As you think about this this reality this week, I just want to give us a minute to respond. Maybe you've known for a while about this reality of you being a child of God. Maybe this is a new reality. Maybe it's a reality that you've heard a hundred times before, but you really struggle to believe. I just want to give us just a minute to respond to however the Lord's prompting you. And to remember that when we respond, we don't just respond and say, okay, yeah, I I know that to be true. We respond in faith, which means that faith moves into action. So however the Lord's prompting you to respond, I just want to give you a minute to, to discern what the Lord's speaking to you.
Father, I pray that we would forever marvel at your love for us. That we would behold, that we would stand back and rejoice and revel in the fact that you have looked at us and you call us your children. So God, whether we need to see today just how broken and messed up we are, or Lord, maybe today we need to see the glory and the grandeur that you've called us to, I pray by your spirit now that you would do that. That we would rejoice, that we would worship you more rightly for who you are, for what you're like. And that, God, we would believe what you've said. That we would believe not just what you've said, but what you have done in our lives. Lord, for this is our prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.